Hello, this is Angelica Yingst, and you're listening to Centered, Grounded Conversations About the Metaphysical. Hello, today's episode is a little different. I'm answering some personal questions asked by my listeners and followers on Facebook. Most of them are about my life as a healer and teacher. And listen, I love answering questions about my research and my work, um, where I get to go down rabbit holes and the personal ones, uh, they can be a little different and difficult because I realize that in all the time that I have spent doing my work and, you know, I'm coming up on 10 years this is really not something I do a ton. I hoped, you know, who I am would kind of slide into the background and be anonymous in a way that we can be when we are healers and people who are of service to others. And I honestly thought that was born of humility and shyness, but unsurprisingly, who I am infiltrates everything I do, every client I help, every class I teach, it never really slips into the background. So I often share my wisdom through my own stories and experiences or the stories and experiences of others that I've helped. And it's often how spirit will speak through me. So when I think of how often I tell a personal story to illustrate some kind of medicine for my students or clients, I really, I I blush and I'm completely embarrassed. And uh, <laughs> I always think like my inner teenagers, like eye rolling, like, oh my gosh, you're so embarrassing. Anyway, if all this sounds familiar, it's because I recently wrote a newsletter where I talked about this. Um, when I first got sober, every day I would set an intention. And my intention most days was to talk less and listen more. That didn't work very much because I'm a big talker, but I still wonder how much of it was truly humility, or as I'm loath to admit, that it was actually a fear of intimacy and a subconscious pushing back from my vulnerability. So if someone said, write about you, I said, oh my gosh, all these people already know me. All I do is write about me. But the truth is that recoveries taught me a lot of valuable lessons but probably the most important is that your story my story is all I have my mistakes my failures my successes my experience that is my medicine it's what I have to pass on so my trauma is what I have to pass on and I can do it in shadowy ways that hurt people or I can do it in ways that help people So it's why the broken among us are often the best at holding space and being healers because we've been there. So here I am answering some questions and, you know, I'd love to have a monthly episode answering questions from you. If you would like to ask me some, you can ask me questions about what I do, about healing, research questions, um, because I do love doing research one and two or B I am dedicated to furthering people's spiritual journey. So I'm happy to answer questions about tarot, crystals, shamanic healing, those stuff I do, religions, uh, things like that. But I'm also really mindful that not everybody knows the lingo words and phrases and concepts that me and other spiritual woo woo people take for granted. So you can also ask questions like that. 
If you have any questions, you can send them to Angie at the Moon and Stone uh, or go to my anchor.fm centered portal and you can record a question and have your voice on. So thank you so much and I hope you enjoy this episode of Centered. So my first question is from Liz Grimaldi. She said, what is your, what's your backstory? How and where did you grow up? Did you have a different career before finding your current path? How did you get started on this journey? And then whatever you're comfortable discussing about your history. So sure, I can tell you my backstory. I hope it won't be too long, but I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania in a rural area outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. I had a really ideal middle-class upbringing, like in a little neighborhood in the middle of nowhere. I had lots of kids that I played with. Um, my parents were both uh, working class. They hadn't gone to college. My dad was a Vietnam vet, is a Vietnam vet. And um, he was a forklift driver in warehouses. Um, he was a really smart guy, um, very funny, um, but really, uh, had a lot of anxiety and depression and uh drank heavily so uh he never like missed a day of work or was abusive in any way physically but he was very distant in his own way and my mother is from central america she emigrated here in 1968 or 69 something like that um, and she is also super smart, very beautiful. And, um, she was, um, when I was growing up, she was a secretary, um, and she worked at like insurance companies and then she became a social worker. She actually started as a secretary of the health department in, in Allentown and then, was going on home visits with nurses uh, educating about lead poisoning or uh, breast cancer at different times and um, translating from Spanish to English because my mother is very good. Um, she has very good English. Like some people don't quite, can't quite place her accent, um, but she, she's so smart. And um, she actually moved into the AIDS uh, field and became a social worker doing the actual work. Um, really early in the AIDS crisis, like in 85 or something like that, uh, testing and uh, doing outreach and doing clinics and things like that. And I'm just so proud of the work that she did helping, um, you know, people in our area. Um, and, you know, I was surrounded with like a really open, um, discussion about uh emotions and sex and things like that or with my mom um so that's why I kind of have no uh filter when it comes to those things like I don't I never notice when people are embarrassed or whatever about sex because I just don't have that I never was raised that way and my parents were like 18 in 1968 so they were listening to like Led Zeppelin and smoking pot and they actually named me after the song Angie by the Rolling Stones. <laughs> uh, I do have an identical twin sister and um, we played a lot of sports growing up. We were like latchkey kids. So I grew up with like a lot of anxiety about being alone, even though I was fine being alone. I was very, very independent. 
I um, like I said, I played a lot of sports. So that gave me, I mean, I think I was someone who had a lot of confidence growing up because I was confident in my abilities with my body. So, you know, I was a gymnast. I pitched fast pitch softball. I played basketball. I even played football, which was really rare, but not for very long. But um, <laughs> I went off to college at Temple University in Philadelphia, where I majored in radio, television, and film. And then I left school around year two. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff in my family was unraveling. My parents had gotten separated and divorced when I was about 15, 14, 15. So um, that caused a lot of like trauma in our family because my father never quite recovered um, and started uh, drinking uh, full time. And that was difficult because my sister and I were the only sort of tethers he had um, and started getting sick when I was about 18. Um, and when I say sick, I mean, he started, um, looking drunk all the time, but he would say, I'm not drinking. And then one day he had an episode and it turned out he was ill with multiple sclerosis. And it took like a couple years, a year or so to get diagnosed with MS. Um, and it was like, it's a, he had progressive secondary so he never, he never had a downtime with his disease. It's not like he had an episode and then um, went into remission or something like that. He was always getting sicker from the time he had his first episode. So it turned uh, from, you know, not being able to uh, think clearly, um, not being able to walk. And he was um, very sick for most of my adult life. And I can only say that like about 25 was when I was going to his home every weekend to clean and take care of him and run errands for him. So it was a lot like I became a, a caregiver very young um, and not so young, probably not young a hundred, couple hundred years ago, but young in our, in our lives. So um, when I left school about in my sophomore year, um, I actually drove cross country and moved to Tucson for a few years where I worked as a barista and an artist assistant and a writer. And I tried on a lot of different hats. I got married to my first husband who, um, is still like one of my dearest, closest friends and I adore him. Um, but when we broke up, um, I moved home to finish school and become a caregiver for my father and my grandfather who they were living together at the time. I think my great grandmother was still alive then too. So, um, I changed my major to religion and finished my degree. And when I did that, I began working at a highway engineering firm and I worked there for eight years after college in their marketing department. I started as a temp and then I moved up and was putting together requests for proposals for state road work. And um, then I began writing copy and uh, for like marketing materials, newsletters, uh, RFPs. At some point I became a creative coordinator. So I was like coordinating all of our creative projects like uh, newsletters and brochures and um, things like that. So I loved it. 
it sounds so different than what I did. And it was, I worked with a lot of men and it was a lot of engineers, which if you've ever <laughs> been around engineers, it's just fun. They're like very nerdy and research oriented and very fact-based and I think like it really helped me hone not taking things personally one um also learning how to write things that were what seemed like uninteresting and unsexy to me in sexy ways so like making a bridge sound like uh, a great feat you know which it is it is it's amazing um and I really, really loved land use planning and really considered doing a master's degree in land use planning because I enjoyed that so much. I actually would have stayed in that career for the rest of my life, but I had my first child. I met my husband when I was working there and I had my first child, Beatrice. Um, and my husband's a nurse anesthetist and he was in graduate school when I met him. And he graduated like a month after B was born so um, we decided that I would stay home with B um, which was a total luxury for us um, and it was actually like pretty difficult financially but we did it and then that was when you know I was kind of like full-time mothering and I began writing and doing art more frequently uh, when B would be taking naps and stuff and I really considered homeschooling and doing all that stuff. I loved being home with my baby. Um, and when she was two, I got pregnant. Well, she was one. I got pregnant with my second daughter who was stillborn at 38 weeks. And that's really where my whole world fell apart. Um, I'd always been like a spiritual person. Um, I have my degree in religion, like I said, and I really was focused on Buddhism. So I meditated daily and uh, my Catholicism that I was raised with was part of my psyche. I would, you know, pray a lot and meditate, but I was so gutted and grief stricken. Um, I really, you know, I could talk about this part of my journey for a really long time, but I wrote publicly about it on a blog. I've had a couple of my essays published in books about this part of my journey because I really grieved out loud and I grieved publicly and I had some really beautiful experiences doing that connected me with you know grieving parents all over the world my best friend jess southwood who i did record an episode with earlier in my podcast journey um is like she we got connected and we have been close ever since then but you know at that point in my life writing flowed like i could easily write 12 hours a day and sometimes i feel like i, I might have done that i would stay up after b went to bed and write and write and write and have a little drink <laughs> um so that was really like the sacred opening i think and the beginning of my journey for healing because my daughter Lucia, when she died in 20, 2008, she really saved my life, you know, because she opened me up in ways that I didn't even know was possible. I went through the valley of hell. And I, in that wake of that, you know, I, I had to contend with all these different parts of my shadow controlling different things. Uh, um, and it destroyed a lot of my relationships. Like most of my friendships at that time fell apart. Some I've been able to rebuild and others have been like permanently damaged because of how I 
behaved, I guess, quote unquote, behaved. I don't know. I was grief stricken. Um, and also things I ignored parts of our relationships that weren't balanced. So, you know, I found and I had to face and, and come face to face with a petty, vindictive, jealous part of me. I had to contend with the angry part of me. I had to contend with the traumatized part of me. I had to contend with all of these things that was like the petulant child that could not understand why my child was taken away. And through that process of having, of acting out a lot, I got sober because one of the things that activated a lot of that was my filter would leave when I would have a little bourbon. <laughs> so I did get sober, especially because of my father's history with drinking and his, his parents, not his father, but his mother and my grandparents, all my grandparents, besides my grandmother on my mother's side are alcoholic pretty much. So I had to contend with that. Um, and when I got sober in, in 2010, um, it was a big deal. And, um, so through that process, that's really where my healing work began because that part of my journey meant that I no longer had this shield that was, um, alcohol or, um, what my friend liked or what Athena, you know, I call it, I, I had, taken some classes with Athena and I remember her calling it a soul sedative. What is your soul sedative? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what it was. It was like numbing all of my psychic, empathic, raw nerves that were out there. And when I found alcohol, life wasn't so loud, you know, it was just dulled and I needed that. So when healing began to call me, um, I did the healing on myself first and then I realized like, oh, okay, I'm also being called to help others. So that's um, part of my story. <laughs> um, I had two other children. I have Thomas and Zachary and, um, you know, luckily they've never seen me drink, which is pretty freaking amazing. And um, yeah, I'm just... Oh, very grateful for my story. Okay, Mark Manor asked, I want to know what opened the vault in your soul that sparked the walking encyclopedia we ask questions to on Wednesdays. So if you don't know, I work for Hibiscus Moon Crystal Academy and answer questions for our students on Wednesday. And I do a little research, but mostly answer questions on the spot. So... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've like really always been a nerd and a research monkey and I love, love, love going down rabbit holes. And I'm someone who literally has to, and this is probably ADHD, but I have to set a timer so that I remember to go to the bathroom because I forget <laughs> and I get so like entrenched in my research that I will like ignore my bodily functions. So, but I think, you know, my main spiritual opening was get, probably getting sober and having to deal with my psychic self, which is the sensitivity, the way I lacked boundaries, my empathic, compassionate part. I, I really did feel like a raw nerve and the world was just like much too loud and sharp and bright and all of those things. So it was, 
then that I really started having psychic experiences again, like I did as a child. So when I was a kid, I would, you know, sometimes see angels and uh, ascended masters and um, who I know now. I didn't realize at the time, of course. Then um, I would see ghosts and things like that. And, you know, when I found drinking, which wasn't until I was a little older, like I wasn't one of those kids that did anything bad in high school. Um, but I realized like I drank partially to numb the empathic side of me and the psychic side of me and to deal with other people and myself and going out in public and all that stuff. So really getting sober was the main thing for me. I got back in touch with the artist who, I, who was in me, the writer, the healer, the psychic, and really embraced my nerdish ways. And, um, I have, um, always loved, uh, words and research and knowledge so I think like that's kind of my path is to really go deep with some things I'd probably if I you know had had taken different paths would probably have just been like a PhD student at some point I mean I wish I had been encouraged to do science because I love 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 science and I just read so much and, and listen to so much about science. So anyway, that's it. So Susan Hazard asked, other than crystal shamanic Reiki reference books, what books and topics do you read to feed your spirit? Do you subscribe to channels like Gaia or listen to particular podcasts? I am a serious podcast junkie. Like in fact, uh, in that little thing my first grader filled out for Mother's Day where it says like, my mom is blank. My mom's favorite color is blank. Um, it said my mom's favorite thing to do <laughs> is listen to podcasts, which is true. It's very true. I listen to podcasts when I'm not writing or doing work where I'm doing research. Um, and my favorite podcast right now are, is Ologies by Allie Ward, which is a science podcast um, she explores different areas of study so she calls them ologies um, and I just love it um, and she goes really deep with that and I have enjoyed that I'm really into plants and plant medicine right now so you know I'm kind of uh, interested in those kind of ologies too um, but she really speaks to experts in their field, which I, and I learned so much. So I also love the podcast Plants of the Gods, which is by Dr. Mark Plodkin, who's an ethnobotanist, and he has worked with shamanic tribes in the Amazon. He is so amazing. And this, uh, book, this podcast is really about the different, um, plants that are used as um, medicine and shamanic work for shamanic work. So he's, or like mood altering or mind altering, and he calls them plants of the gods because that's what the tribes and the Amazon call them. So um, I've also been listening to his book, The Amazon, on audiobook for a few months when I have downtime, and that's fascinating too. I like Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. That's a great one. I also really love Maintenance Phase, um, which is by, with Audrey, Aubrey Gordon and Mike, I forget his last name, but um, they really talk about like diet culture and um, do research on trends in dieting and, and stuff like that and like debunk 
a lot of um, even the stuff that's in our community with alternative healing and stuff like that. Um, I like Adam Grant's uh, Work Life podcast. I listen to that every time it comes out, like it's the first thing I listen to. And it's funny because I'm not in a corporate environment anymore, but I am very interested in um, the psychology of organizations and what motivates people in terms of work. I like The Confessional by Nadia Boltz-Weber. She is, if you don't know her, a um, Lutheran minister and she has people tell their story and she calls it the confessional because it's kind of usually their worst story about how they made a mistake or how they hurt someone else and how they live with that. Um, I also listen to a lot of comedy and I love comedy and I love comedy podcasts. So I listen to Dana Carvey's podcast. I live listen to his podcast with David Spade called Fly on the Wall. I listen to Sarah Silverman's podcast every week, but my absolute favorite is Conan O'Brien's podcast, Conan Needs a Friend, because I love him. Um, and then I also listen to news podcasts like The Daily. Um, I listen to Code Switch. I listen to Fresh Air. I listen to um, Radio Lab. I listen to The Moth. So I kind of go through different phases. And so like right now I have a bunch of moths that I haven't listened to because I haven't been into storytelling. I've been more into the science ones. So I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of jazz. So Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, Dave Brubeck, Lonely's Monk. I love singers like Chet Baker and Ella Fitzgerald. I also listen to a lot of like punk rock. I love the Velvet Underground. I love the Pixies. I love Bjork. So I kind of like rotate through. Right now I'm like really into this morning mix I made, which has like all 60s women singers and, and men singers. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, you know, soul and stuff like that. So it's fun. I do read a lot. I read before bed. Um, and that I never, I try really hard not to read anything research-based. So I read a ton of like novels. I love literary fiction. Um, and I read a lot of like historical fantasy or witchy fantasy, uh, witchy romance books. I'm currently reading Paula Braxton's latest book, The Witch's Night, which I, I love her. She writes a lot of cool witchy books set in Wales. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my thing that gets me going. The things, many things that get me going. Okay. Audrey asked me on Instagram, what's your favorite animal to work with in journey? And I honestly don't know if I have a favorite animal, but I tend to work with certain animals for certain work. So they're my favorite to do that work with. Like my teacher, Pixie Light Horse, uh, taught me how to work with mountain lion for boundaries. For example, she introduced mountain lion to me for that work. And whenever I do boundaries work, even with clients, I call in the mountain lion and I love mountain lion cause mountain lion is very fierce, but also very protective. And sometimes I feel like I need that patrolling my boundaries. I love feeling protected as I grew up with some anxiety and worry and, when I'm alone, you know, thinking that mountain lion is patrolling and keeping my boundaries uh, safe really is comforting for me. Um, I also work with bear for very similar reasons. So like these apex predators are really great for me and working with them in journey with my own 
fear-based uh, approaches to life. So, which I don't really let out very much and it isn't like very present for me anymore, but um, that's because I've worked with these animals for so long that they kind of feel that way. And I feel like bears always, always been with me. I can remember having bear dreams when I was like five or six of a bear coming and like coming into my home and holding me, you know? So I think, you know, bear always puts me in like a really heart centered place and opens my heart to healing and has a very maternal feeling for me. So I work with bear for some of that, like mothering that I need. Um, so I, I have worked with bear for a long time. Bear's been an archetype and a guide for me. So um, that's probably like, if I had to guess, like, or I said, not guess, but say what my favorite animal is. Bear is one of those that I go to. I don't work with a lot of prey animals though. I think rabbit is probably the closest one for me because of my creative work and rabbit is a wonderful ally for creative work because even though they're scared all the time, they still keep creating. And so like the anxiety of putting yourself out there, you know, uh, that's a rabbit thing. So I think rabbit would probably be one of the closer ones for me. I work with, um, Buffalo, um, but I, I've, I've moved away from that a little bit as time has gone on. Sue Peterson, who is my dear friend, asks, what things, activities, and relationships did you lose or have to let go of on your spiritual journey? And how do you navigate the changes? Um, that's such a good question. I really kind of struggled with this question a little bit because I think like I lost stuff before uh, I really got on my spiritual path, which is how I got on my spiritual path was kind of hitting a bottom. But so drinking and partying was the first to go. And I struggle now I struggle with certain kinds of media, particularly like violent things. I used to love movies just for movie's sake. Um, and I would watch anything and I, I never reacted. I kind of prided myself on not being like a big crier in movies. And now I cry whenever somebody's getting hurt or, like literally I will cry at Hallmark movies because I'm just like a weepy mess. Um, so I really shield myself from violent things. Um, and you know, my husband and I watched Game of Thrones when that was on and I swear I watched maybe a third of the shows because my hands were covering my eyes and I would just like even cover my ears because I couldn't even hear that stuff. And I would just have him describe to me what happened or tell me what happened afterward like oh did he kill that guy and and stuff like that so anyway so i struggle handling anything scary or violent um though you know one of my favorite shows is law and order svu so i don't know what that means but <laughs> i can i can watch some things that talk about that um but i can't even watch like a superhero movie it's pretty pathetic but in general um i think not caring for myself is not acceptable anymore. And I've had to really let go of things like staying up late. Um, I've, ha I've not really had to give up too many relationships, but I think I am like really protective of who I let into my family now and into my life. Um, I'm not too social in general. I have a couple of really close friends, but I tend not to and I'm very, very friendly with a lot of people. Like, I think people think I'm super extroverted and outgoing because I'm not afraid to talk to people and just introduce myself and ask them about them and stuff like that. But 
I tend to not be really good in crowds or in groups. So like parties aren't my forte. I'm better one-on-one with people. Um, so I tend to not be in places where there's alcohol or drugs. Um, though I can be, I just don't really need to go to places like that. My kids haven't really ever, they haven't seen me drink, but they also have never seen anyone drink, which is interesting and shocking. Um, but that's just the way it is. So I really, I think the hardest part of my spiritual path, the hardest lessons I've had to learn are how to maintain boundaries within my practice and with like students and clients, because honestly, the people that come to see me are so cool and awesome. And, uh, I really like them and I want, you know, being friends with them seems like a natural transition, but in the same token, I've had to, maintain boundaries in that way. Like they can be friends or they can be clients, but they can't be both at the same time right away. Now I do have some people that I see that are my friends, but in general, uh, I have not been great at navigating those boundaries the best. So I have had to learn that the hard way. And that's been really, really difficult. I think I've probably failed some people in that realm, being a, a teacher who, you know, thought I could bridge like the friendship thing and just couldn't. I wasn't very good at that and probably acted in ways that were unprofessional or, um, you know, wasn't, it wasn't great at walking that line. So I've learned that. Um, so like early in my practice, I was not good at that. So I would have, uh, a client who would be like, we should have coffee and hang out sometime. I'd be like, yes. And then we would do it and hang out all the time. And then things would get difficult because they would ask me to do readings for them or, you know, just the whole thing would get really blurry. And I, I would like not be sure how to navigate them. But, you know, I feel like my friendships now are really good, equal exchanges of energy. Um, but I, and I regret not following my gut with certain relationships or not setting healthy boundaries because in the end, I feel like, you know, it wasn't their responsibility to hold that boundary. It was mine and I didn't do a great job of that. So, I mean, I think that's been the hardest lesson I've written about losing friendships a lot because they have been some of the most painful parts of my life. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I think where I would stop there. Thanks for listening to Centered with me, Angie Yinkst. If you'd like to send me a question or comment about this show or any shows, you can send them to angie at themoonandstone.com.